You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is the esteemed Andrew O'Hara. What's going on, Victor? I'm fantastic. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here, and we've got all of our handsome listeners, the best-dressed people in, in town, listening to us on the podcast, and I am ready to talk all about, first of all, Stitcher Premium. So if you haven't joined Stitcher Premium yet, now is the perfect time. Stitcher Premium gets you completely ad-free episodes of hundreds of shows like Comedy Bang Bang, WTF with Mark Marin, and How Did This Get Made? You also get 21,000 hours of exclusive content. New exclusive originals like Marvel's Wolverine and Issa Rae's Fruit are launching every week for Stitcher Premium members, and if you love podcasts, you're missing out. When you listen to ad-free episodes in Stitcher Premium, your favorite podcasters get paid. Help support your favorite shows and join Stitcher Premium today. For a free month of listening, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code APPLE. And you know, I, I want to thank one of our listeners who was kind enough to point out to me that I have been in, I've been pronouncing one of those names of those podcasts incorrectly all this time. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's uh, I'm, I'm only mildly embarrassed, and it's just because there are so many good podcasts out there that it is difficult to listen to even the ones that are, are the most well-known and the best made and best produced. We certainly try our best here, and I, I apologize for that. So we've corrected the pronunciation. Now, jumping right in... There's There's been a conversation that we've been having on this show for going back almost three years now, and it's been about who makes the modem inside the iPhone. The modem is the part that contains the Wi-Fi radios. It also contains the cellular data connection. And so, you know, if you think back to the iPhone 4, when it was announced that iPhone 4 was going to gain compatibility with Verizon... Everyone knew that Qualcomm was going to be making the modem because Qualcomm are the people that own the patents around CDMA, the technology that was used for iPhone 4 at that time. That was the 3G technology that was required used by Verizon for making calls. Now, obviously, Apple and Qualcomm are having a bit of a disagreement. And while that's going on, it, it, Intel has been in consideration for making the modems and, and, of course, did make some of the modems for the iPhone 10 and iPhone 8. Is that right? Yeah. We, we've been sitting here looking at this and thinking all along that Intel was going to simply just be the, the modem maker going forward, and it wasn't going to be Qualcomm at this point, or at least that Apple was going to reduce their business with Qualcomm until this problem's resolved. And we have news that suggests that, no, we're all mistaken, Apple will not be using Intel modems for the next iPhones. And so the news here is that Apple has notified Intel. They've actually let Intel know that they are not going to use a mobile modem developed by Intel in its next generation mobile device. Uh, this is Intel executives saying in their communications that um, further development of the modem component internally called Sunny Peak has been halted and the Intel team that's working on the product will be directed to other projects. So it is very much clear that Intel is not going to be doing that, that uh, Intel executives have described Apple as the key mobile customer for the 5G mobile modem that they were developing. Intel expected Apple to be the main volume driver for the product, and if Apple isn't buying, they aren't making. Now, this is all from uh, an internal document that was provided to Calculist. Calculist asked Intel for comment, and Intel said, sorry, we don't comment on matters like that. We don't comment on matters pertaining to customers, and Apple similarly has not responded for comment. Sunny Peak is a 5G Wi-Fi and Bluetooth component designed by Intel, apparently intended for Apple's future phones. Now, 5G is a real thing. 5G is a huge deal. What do you know about 5G, Andrew? 
I have not read. I mean, I know the basic gist of it. I know kind of where the rollout's been happening, but it's still looking like it's a little bit away. But it's going to be a huge deal when it actually does get here. So the the there are a couple of interesting effects that come from it. First of all, it it provides super high bandwidth, right? Mm-hmm. It's like ridiculous speeds. It's yeah, like mostly faster than people's home Wi-Fi's will be for sure. Oh yeah, and the the other thing that it provides is. Um, because it has to be in a mobile device, it's it's respectful of power demands. We we've always had this sort of separation between cell providers and home internet providers, and you know your cell provider could provide you with internet, but you weren't going to use them as your only internet connection, because it's just too expensive if you actually use lots of data to use your cell provider, even if you have a so-called unlimited plan. But in in the future where a cell carrier carrier can provide you with a, a set of speeds that are rival or surpass your home internet provider. Because remember, a cable modem company, even if they're using Doxus 3.0 or 3.1, can really only provide you with, what, about 350 meg down? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's going to be asymmetric. You're going to get 350 meg down and 100 up or something like that, right? If you're lucky. It's not going to be a 350, 350, is it? No. No. So un- unless you have a, a gigabit fiber connection, you know, you're you're, you're not going to get it. And there's some suggestion that 5G may even deliver more than that gigabit fiber connection can deliver. Um, it's, it's uncertain. But even so, to, to have a cell connection that can deliver better internet, faster internet than most of the ISPs available in North America is a big deal. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, okay. Yeah. So, so, so what happens to Comcast and Spectrum and, and, uh, all of these cable providers in that future and what happens to the cell carriers because it seems to me that all you need to do is get a cell modem for your house and use that as your router and you know your, your isp business moves over to your phone business yeah I, I mean i can definitely see a lot of times like why would you want to use your slow home wi-fi when you can have way faster speeds on your phone and if you could use that for the other devices in your house as long as you're able to get use a respectful amount of data or have a, an appropriate plan, it definitely seems like the way to go for a lot of people. And you're kind of consolidating. You're getting rid of one thing and go to the other, especially people using streaming services for their TV, um, Netflix, Hulu, Sling, all that stuff. Loses a lot of the reason to, to go with a separate you know cable company for your home. Now, look at someone like T-Mobile and Sprint, where T-Mobile has the their, their zero rating plans, where if you have a T-Mobile plan, you want to view Netflix. You can view Netflix at no hit to your data plan, right? Yeah. If you do that for your home internet service, you can watch all the Netflix you want. It doesn't count against your data. And you you have sorted out your TV at no additional cost. Yeah. And then it's, you're it's, using... It kind of puts these cable companies on the run. As well as anyone who's not included in that zero rating plan. Anyone who's not oh, absolutely <laughs> Netflix or any of those other uh, streaming services. Yeah, totally. So it's it's a big deal, and and it's also an equally big deal that Apple is not using Intel for this this modem because that's a big hit to Intel. Intel is kind of taking a beating lately, right? Um, Intel's had a huge turmoil with their CEO turnover, and it's not clear whose leadership is right now, is it? And no, not really. He he just left, and I don't know that there's even been a named replacement at this moment. And it, it seems like it's a little up in the air. Add to that the difficulty that they've had getting chips out that are ones that Apple's been seeking to upgrade MacBook Pros, for example. 
or presumably something that they want to use in a Mac Pro that has yet to materialize. Um, it's it's looking more and more like Intel may be something to be concerned about here. Now, we've got a companion story that we ran about MediaTek. Now, MediaTek got tapped to do the HomePod Wi-Fi chip orders. MediaTek supplies chips for a lot of Android tablets. They, they make cheap laptops. Um, I remember there was a, a laptop that I picked up in Aldi in Germany at one point that uh, was based on a MediaTek chipset for some things. Um, they, they do a bunch of stuff. A lot of cheap Android phones have, have MediaTek processors in them. So certainly they're able to make product. They are getting closer to making the, uh, the iPhone modem is what the supply chain sources claim. Now, obviously, this is a supply chain source. It's uh, sources of Digitimes. So it's not entirely certain what exactly will happen. But MediaTek, they, they, they claim, is likely to provide customized Wi-Fi chips required for the HomePod. Uh, and if confirmed, this would be MediaTek would provide in the same Wi-Fi and Bluetooth module that's already provide, supplied for the speaker by Broadcom. And they could displace Intel supplies. Now, we don't know a whole lot more than that, but MediaTek did reveal that they've got a 5G modem chipset that they call the Helio M70. Um, they claim it's developed on the 3GPP standards, that it's able to transmit up to 5 gigabits per second on a 5G network, and that it's a 7 nanometer process by TSMC, so it's going to have reduced power consumption. Can you imagine having a phone that can do 5 gigabits per second? I would like to imagine that. I would. I mean, if you could do that then, you know, it seems to me you could you could uh, pretty easily come up with a router out of just an old phone and, uh, well, rather a new phone and, and an Ethernet connection off of it. It doesn't sound out of the realm of possibility, yeah. I mean, that's, that would be insane. That'd be amazing. But, of course, they're gonna, companies are going to supply modems like that, too. Because, like I said, you know, T-Mobile wants to be able to be all of your, your customers, right? They, they want you all in just as AT&T does. So this is kind of huge. I, I think we're, we're sort of watching these things come together where it's going to be a changing landscape for how you get internet delivered to your house. Now, other things that are happening that are changing is uh, we have an investor note, an analyst report, which is revising up their shipment forecast for iPhone models in uh, the late 2018, in the second half of 18. The idea here is that because there's the 6.1-inch LCD iPhone, that, that that phone and the 6.5-inch OLED iPhone are, are likely to sell a lot more than they previously expected. They're, they're revising these shipments up by about 10%. They figure it'll be, uh, what, 80 to 90 million units of these things. And that's up from 75 to 85 million units that they were originally predicting. I I want to see it. They think in third quarter and fourth quarter that it's going to grow year on year and reach over uh, 15 to 20 million in units and 60 to 70 million units year on year, respectively. So this is kind of cool. I, I think I'm also looking forward to that phone model personally. I'd like to hear from our listeners if you have already sort of figured out which phone is appropriate for you, which one you're looking forward to hearing more about and purchasing. Andrew, are you in the market for a phone upgrade? Um, I'm always in the market for a phone upgrade, Victor, all the time. <laughs> Are, are you looking forward to these new iPhones? I, I am always looking. I mean, even after all this time, I feel like I would start to get like, you know, underwhelmed and may, I may not be as excited as maybe I used to be, but I am still like over the moon over possible new iPhone models. I always get excited about them. Um, I'm really excited to see this lineup this year. I feel like with the addition of the 10 last year, it's getting very murky 
we're starting to wonder like, okay, what, what are they going to name this thing? Are we going to have the iPhones 11s and 12s? That seems unlikely. There's, there's so that we got new models coming out. We even, I think we saw some rumors on some new colors for iPhones possibly coming out. Um, it's going to get kind of confusing on which models are sticking around, which ones are new, what sizes there are, because we're going to have the iPhone 10. We're going to have this new middle one that is the 6.1 inch that's like between an iPhone 10 and an iPhone 10 plus, but it's going to have that cheaper LCD display. So that's yes. going to be like a, a much cheaper model, but it's going to have, you know, this, a much larger display in there. It's going to be very interesting to see what actually comes out and what the biggest differentiators are for those for the new phones. What I'm really interested to see is what the price points will be, because we we had this huge controversy <laughs> that we made about and, and and we really did make it. I mean, the, we we were concerned about what it would mean for Apple if they moved to the thousand dollar price point. They did, and and honestly, it didn't really hurt them in any way. People who wanted iPhones that weren't a thousand dollars bought iPhone eights. People that wanted the best one, they went ahead and they paid their money, and no one really cared. So that was that was something we were really concerned about that didn't come to pass. I'm wondering what the price points will be this year because now that we know that there's a thousand dollar price point, what does that look like for the other phones? I agree. Is this new? You know, is the iPhone 10 model going to drop a little in price? Or are they going to keep the iPhone 10 where it is and bump up the price even higher for the plus size model? I know a lot of people that I talked with, like they were already on like the like the installment plans where they're paying, you know, 35, 37 a month or something. And a lot of people I know went from the plus model to the iPhone 10 because really when they were looking at their monthly plans, it was only a couple more dollars. So they're like, why stick with like, you know, the eight plus when I could go to the 10, which is completely new and has a whole lot of new features and better cameras and all this stuff. For only a couple of dollars more a month. So it when it came down to like those monthly installment plans, a lot of people I knew just they didn't care. It's a couple dollars difference and they got a much better phone in their eyes. Yeah. Are they paying those installment plans through their carrier or are they paying them through the Apple upgrade program? I mean I've talked to a lot of people about it and I it's 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 generally split. I know a few people who are doing it through Apple and a few people who are doing it through the actual carriers. Yeah. I I am mixed. See I wanted to do things through the Apple upgrade program. And the thing that stopped me is that what, what I really want is to be carrier independent. I want to be able to not be not have a phone that's locked and I want to be able to move from carrier to carrier whenever I feel like it. And that's not possible. It was almost possible through the Apple upgrade program, because if you're paying Apple, then then why should anyone care? But when you go to buy a phone through the Apple upgrade program, they want to know right away who your carrier is. Yeah. So it's it's. um it's difficult. The, the only way to get an unlocked phone and not be beholden to them is to still buy, you know, the, the straight up cash only price, basically, or the, the, the one time purchase price. Yep. It's disappointing. I was hoping that someone would lead the way on carrier independence. But as it looks now, there's just more and more lock in. You know, I rattled on about this a couple episodes ago where Verizon has, has broken their agreement and broken the rules with the FCC and, and is violating them actively by locking fansets. And, um, they're not allowed to under the terms that they agreed when they agreed to purchase Spectrum. It's frustrating as heck for me that they do this kind of consumer lock-in. And I, I think there needs to be a way to make it all go away. That's that's my personal opinion. And it's not about net neutrality. It's about customer portability. You know, the phone, as long as you're paying off the phone, why should you be beholden to the, the actual service part of it? Because it's not subsidized. I mean, I guess maybe they look at it as just giving you essentially that loan on the phone. You're not paying 
a super amount of interest right. on that. So they want to make that up other ways by you paying for your monthly bill with them. Fine. If you're doing that through the carrier, it makes sense. But if you're doing that through Apple, why does this arrangement need to exist? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's beyond me. It annoys me. It's something I'm going to have to learn about. And speaking of learning, Udemy is the largest and most accessible online learning marketplace with the most courses, teachers, and opportunities for students everywhere around the globe. Udemy has over 65,000 courses from coding to comic book art available anywhere on their website and app. You know, I really enjoy podcasting and and listening to podcasts is a learning experience because we get to, to talk about ideas. I get to hear back from listeners and we like that listener feedback. And this, this, the internet enables a lot of things that years ago wouldn't have been available to us. Udemy is, is one of those kinds of tools that is just another part of the internet's ability to, to help us learn and help us grow ourselves and our skills. So, you know, I, I have looked through the classes. I have yet to take a class, but I am looking at all kinds of things about iOS development. And there are tons of courses there, whether it's Swift or, or Objective C or, any of the different ways that you can work to to build an app. And I kind of want to do it. It's been years since I've published anything on the App Store. I need to go back and, and figure out how this all works now. And I'm, I'm kind of even more excited now that there's Marzipan because the, the ideal ability, idea of being able to, to port apps across from iOS to macOS is a really interesting idea to me and one we're going to talk about later on in the show. Now, Udemy has something for everyone. If you're not interested in developing or programming, they have courses on just about anything you can possibly think of. And it's available on the computer. It's available on an app on the phone. It's pretty much everywhere. You can have access to new knowledge wherever you are. So check out Udemy. They've helped students all over the world improve their skills, their careers, and their lives. And they've helped me set up this exclusive offer just for you, dear listener. Go to ude.my slash Apple Insider right now and get 90% off when you sign up for classes. There is no better price than this. So sign up for classes now using my link, ude.my slash Apple Insider, and get access to life-changing classes for 90% off. Make sure you download the app for your phone so you can stream your studies wherever you are. That's ude.my slash Apple Insider. ude.my slash Apple Insider. And not only will you be the most handsomely dressed listener, you will also be the best educated. Now, what email service do you use, Andrew? You mean what client or provider? If I emailed you, yeah. what provider would I be emailing you at? What comes after the at sign on your email? <laughs> I'm still rocking a vintage now at Mac.com email address as my primary. Ooh, I as know. your primary? Yeah. How many outages do you get? Um, not I, too I much. say that while laughing. I'm I'm kind of teasing you there. Yeah, still works. Still holding on. Is it? That's pretty cool. I I have as my iCloud account. I have an at me domain at me dot com. Yeah, I have a few aliases set up. So obviously there was there was the at mac dot com, or, and then when it switched to the mobile me, I had I at that point I had created a few aliases because my regular email has got mm. like numbers in it and an M oh, God. and an N right next to each other, which is a stupid thing. Whenever you try to say your email and they're like, wait, what were those letters? Yeah, that's so, that's obnoxious. Yeah, I created like a really easy alias and those all got the at me domains. Um, I don't nice. have, I mean, I guess I technically have some at iCloud because I think you can just still log you, in with. You're, you're forced, basically. Yeah, so I still have those, but I still 
keep my my vintage one around other than my I, yeah. personalized domain one no no i have a i have a personalized domain i have the at mac.com and i have at me.com and uh, i don't have any aliases and i don't have letters and numbers that are bad like that in my name for that one but interestingly in 2005 when when gmail was the new hotness and it was so hot that people were trading duct tape wallets and other strange created knickknacks to try and convince people to give them a Gmail account because they were in short supply. Do you remember those days? No, I don't. Oh, so, oh my God. In 2005, Gmail launched and it was the hottest thing ever the internet had ever seen at that time. Um, maybe the dancing baby from uh, Ally McBeal was just as hot, but but basically it was it was a cool thing to get a Gmail address and no one had them and you had to get invited into the program to get them and then you could recommend or give one other invite out. And so people were trading things like like um, rubber inner tube wallets, wallets made out of rubber inner tube, tire tire inner tube, or, or duct tape wallets, or other creative kinds of stuff. You know, hey, man, I'll give you this thing that I normally sell for 15 bucks for a Gmail address so that people could get in on Gmail addresses. And it wasn't that webmail was a new thing. Webmail was invented by Hotmail, which was bought by Microsoft. But... It was that this was Google doing it right. And it really was for a long time, the, the best interface for webmail you could find. And my email that I use primarily is a Gmail address. Why are we talking about this? Why should anyone care? I don't know. Yeah, you do. You read the story the same as I did. Come on. Why, why should anyone care about this stuff? Um, in case other people happen to be uh, reading your emails, perhaps. Who would do such a thing? I don't know. Certainly not Google for sure, but maybe other app developers. The Wall Street Journal published this report that says that even though Google swears up and down that they are not reading emails to create new services or app features, that the bulk of emails are scanned electronically by computer software, but there are no humans doing it as far as they're concerned, right? Mm -hmm. But app developers that are a part of Google's Gmail program are allowed to read these emails to create new services or app features. And ReturnPath is a company, a firm that skims emails for data of interest to marketers, scanned the inboxes of over 2 million people leaving 8,000 unredacted emails to be read by its employees. Other marketing companies, as well as app makers, also have access to Gmail emails. Now, Google's not alone in this practice. Microsoft, Verizon Oaths Communications, which, you know, Verizon bought out of AOL and all that stuff, also let partners skim their user emails. Oath was, was actually formed out of the Yahoo acquisition. It says access is considered on a case-by-case basis and requires explicit consent from users, which is similar policies that have, Microsoft has. 25 uh, current and former employees of app developers and data companies found that the practice of reviewing email data has become really common in the industry. Google told the journal that their own employees only read user emails in very specific cases where you ask us to and give us consent or where we need to for security purposes, such as investigating a bug or abuse. Well, Google lets any user revoke access to any apps at any point. Now, I've tried to do this. And when you do it, you have to go to your Google account. You have to go through security. You have to get, there are like 10 steps to get at where this stuff is to revoke access to apps. It's it's not easy. It's way easy to allow it. You click OK. It's really difficult to disallow it. Now, in June of last year, Google announced that the company would begin serving ads based on a user's settings, meaning that consumer Gmail accounts would not be used or scanned for ad personalization by Google. But here we are, and there are all these other app developers and marketing companies that are doing it for them and doing it to their own advantage. So... Now I'm thinking about how difficult is it to migrate my Google account, especially since I'm now a Google customer for Google Fiber, and um, they uh, they just give me a huge amount of additional space for Drive and email. 
here we are. That's the thing is, you know, every one of these companies that is, is an ad supported company at one point or other is doing things to try and optimize for that and sell the data in some way or sell access to the data in some way to create services. It's trite to say it now. If you're, if you're not paying for it, then you are the product. The, the difficult thing is figuring out how to be a deletionist and how to remove yourself from that situation if you so choose. You know, there are plenty of people that say it's fine to be the product and they're happy with that. At the same time, I, I think it's reasonable to be concerned about how much data you're allowing out there and how big a target it can make of you for things in the future that, that are no longer okay as they are today. You know, say attitudes shift and you've got your emails that, that are being scanned for one thing and all of a sudden that becomes unpopular now. You have to go ahead and scrub your emails or scrub your history or figure out how to undo that. It's it's just an awkward situation to have that much data hanging around there and be uh, be open to. So... In the past, we've run articles about deleting Facebook or deleting or cleaning Facebook posts and likes and things like that. I'm thinking we may have to figure out how to talk about how to migrate away from Gmail. And if, if I write that article, which I'm strongly thinking about right now, you'll find it here on Apple Insider. Now, Andrew, have you given any thought to Amazon's Firecube? I mean, no, I definitely have not. I have not been impressed by their their Fire Sticks, their other Fire TV stuff. And I was like, when the cube came out, I was immediately underwhelmed, and I was I was frankly a little bit annoyed that a lot of people were going to buy this thing because I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to be biased against the Apple TV, which is really what I like and use, but this thing just is not. It's not piquing my interest when it comes to set top boxes. Okay, so first of all, I know people that love their Amazon Fire devices. I have a Fire Box, the first gen one. I had the first gen Fire Stick. Um, I have set up a bunch of second-gen Fire Sticks for people, and there are a couple of things that make Fire popular for people. First of all, it's not a terrible interface. It it does have the you know Amazon and Netflix and Hulu and Directv and PSView and a Sling and a bunch of services that people like on them. It has Alexa, which if you like Alexa, it's great. Um, for a long time, the Fire boxes required the use of the button for that. But if you had an Alexa device like a Dot or an Echo in the house, you could use those. And then they added the ability, finally, to be able to send video by voice from the, the Dot or the Echo to the Fire TV. And that works well. It took them a while to get there. It took a while for it to, get, to work very well, but it does work. The, um, the combination of the IR Blaster is a good idea, I think. And I like very much launching things by voice. If I can just say, you know, hey, hey, Alexa, and I'm sorry for triggering anyone who's got a device in the background, but hi, hi, whatever, open Stranger Things on Netflix and having it pull up the episode and pick up where I left off. That is brilliant. I like that a lot. And there, there are reasons for this thing to exist, but their implementation appears to be lacking. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. There, there's definitely going to be positives. I mean, personally, I don't use Alexa that much. I definitely have a few Alexa devices, but they seem almost more annoyances at this point as Siri has continued to grow throughout my life. But there's a lot of stuff to like with Alexa. And that was probably one of the main things that I was intrigued by them. But everything else is just not not doing it for me. Not doing it for me here. So here's why I would hold off on this device. It, it's using the same processor as the one used in the Raspberry Pi 3. And, well, that processor works great for a bunch of projects that I run on Raspberry Pi. I, I have run Kodi, the uh, the video application, on, you know, the Media Center application, on Raspberry Pi using uh, LibreLec, which is a, a very light OS whose motto is something like, 
just enough OS to run Kodi. Basically, they've stripped out everything else so that it's as fast as possible. And it's still a little slow because you're asking a lot of a Raspberry Pi. And so if that's the chip that they're using for this device, they're asking a lot of it because they're trying to run all of Prime Video, they're trying to run Hulu, they're trying to run Netflix, and trying to IR Blast and manage all of this and manage voice. It's it's just too much to really ask of essentially a Raspberry Pi. Very much so. And especially when you compare that to the Apple TV again, the 4K is running that, I think, A10X right now, which is what they're running in, you know, the high-end iPads. That's a huge difference in in processors between the two units. Apps are going to take a long time to load on on Amazon Fire TV, the uh, the Cube. It's just, I think the thing to do is if this at all interests you, and I think it is intriguing, uh, wait for a version two. They're they're going to have to try and make it suitable for 4K. They're going to have to try and and make it really work better. They say that when you ask her to find 4K movies, that it displays regular HD. I, I think they've got some work to do. Yeah, and they don't. They also don't upgrade any of your purchases, I believe. They don't do that like they did on the Apple TV. When Apple came out with 4K, for the Apple TV, they immediately upgraded any video you had that was available in 4K to 4K. And they don't do that on the, uh, the Fire Cube. And even if you buy something that's the same price on iTunes, you're getting an HD version a lot of the times through the Fire Cube versus the Apple TV would give you 4K. So even purchases that are the same price, you're not even getting the same quality, even though it should be capable of it. Yeah. I have a friend who, who prefers the Amazon Fire devices. He has the Apple TV 4. And when he updated it to the latest iOS 11.4 on it, it forgot the pairing with the remote and would not let him click past one of the initial steps that it shows you to re- repair the remote. <laughs> he had to dig out a remote for an Apple TV 2, which had the physical remote, mm-hmm. the mechanical remote, and use that press the OK button to get past the, uh, the the steps of setting it up again before he could repair it with the Bluetooth remote. He hates that thing, and he's, he's disappointed with the whole experience because of the Siri remote for the Apple TV 4th gen. Well, as we talked about last time, maybe we're going to see some awesome new uh, third-party remotes that work with the Apple TV. I hope so. I think that would be interesting, and it might even save the experience for people who have that same kind of problem. Because the Apple TV is a really wonderful device, but it's also a very expensive device compared to its competition. And little hiccups like that just give people a, a really bad taste in their mouth that lingers. People remember when something didn't work. It does, which is why people should be annoyed with the whole Alexa experience on the Fire Cube. The fact that she's pulling up the wrong stuff. That's a huge problem also. But you know, when I used Google Home with Chromecast to do things by voice, again, it worked brilliantly. So Amazon's got to get there. But in terms of the, the TV experience itself, it's not terrible. It's not the worst, except when the devices are too slow to actually run it. Mm-hmm. So, so what we're saying here is, first of all, it's really slow hardware. The voice control is kind of pants because your your voice doesn't really deliver on that Fire Cube. The, four, the, the 4K HDR content, there's no 4K content. They did upgrade it for you. And when you try and cast a video, it uh, it doesn't really work well either, right? Well, you don't have, you don't have, um, I don't think you have Chromecast or AirPlay, obviously, with that. So any yeah. Apple user out there who wants to be able to use, like, you know, we're sitting in the living room. I, I did this last night. We're watching a video on our phone. I'm like, hey, check this out, Faith. And uh, I go to show my girlfriend this video, throw it to the TV, two seconds, and 
then we go back to watching what we were watching. It's incredibly easy and seamless. And if you, I mean, you can do it for everything. You can mirror the screen of your phone. Like it's, it, you can work on your computer. It's so easy. And then there's, you know, the Fire Cube. If you've got an Apple device, there's still stuff you can do. Um, obviously, you can control a lot more stuff through Alexa that way, but it just does not have the options that the Apple TV has uh, and AirPlay has. Yeah, I uh, I have a Chromecast here with me while I'm traveling. I also have a, uh, a streaming box that runs Kodi. An Android box, and I used to travel with the Apple TV, but it's a kind of a big box to travel with. You know, you you want something a little smaller, and being able to to cast stuff goes a long way. I ended up putting Air Server on my Mac and connecting my Mac for a while when I wanted to cast or AirPlay. Yeah. Now there's another issue with this, which is if you have uh, if you have Alexa going and you have the Fire Cube, and you have a bunch of IoT devices in your home that are also Alexa compatible, like. Suppose you want to display the video feed from a cloud cam. If you tried to do that from your phone, it, it's pretty quick, right? You have to pull out your phone. You have to launch the app. You have to wait for it to connect. It's about 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. But if you've already got the Alexa Fire Cube set up, you ought to be able to just ask for it by voice, right? Yeah, you would think. If the TV is already on, that's pretty cool. But if the TV isn't on and you have to have the Fire Cube turn on the TV, it takes about 10 seconds for the feed to show up on your phone and 30 seconds on the TV. So if you were doing a cloud cam and internally monitoring your house, like, you know, you had a cam set up in the the children's bedroom, for example, and you heard a noise from the nursery, 30 seconds is kind of a long time. Yeah, it's 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 definitely quite a delay. And on the Apple TV side of things, since we're going to keep comparing the two, um, there is no direct option for that. So you can't, you know, while the Apple TV is off, I can't ask another Siri device to show it on my Apple TV. I can't hold down the Siri button and ask her to show me my feeds. There are definitely ways to do it. I use HomeCam on my Apple TV. And from when I launch the app to when my feeds show up is only like maybe a second. But there isn't an, a from like a completely powered off TV state and everything. I mean, I guess at that point, it's still going to be quicker if I can just wait for my TV to turn on. That time should be the same. When I open the app to the time that my home cam, my HomeKit camera show up, it is only maybe a second or two of delay. So I guess even in that regard, based on just TV opening and having to open the app, it's still going to be faster on an Apple TV. But for such a tight integration between the Amazon cloud cameras and the Cube, I would have thought that they would have optimized that a bit more. Yeah, it should work better. So you're using HomeCam as an application on Apple TV to view your HomeKit compatible cameras? Yes. Neat. It works really well. Um, and They've got a, a cool little interface set up. So the developer actually made it so you can control your other devices at the same time. So when I open up like my patio or my dining room in home cam, I can actually control the other devices in the room. So it's like a little like it's like a tap or a hold or something. And it brings up all like the lights controls. and everything. Yeah. So I can like while watching the camera feed, I can adjust my devices. So if I'm watching the patio, I'm like, wait, what's going on on my patio? Is that like something getting into something? Hold on. Let me turn on my patio lights. Oh, yep. That's a thing. And then I could I think I can even use a. I could pull up my phone and use like the two-way communication, which I don't think works through HomeCam, but um, I could always you know run outside to yell at the raccoon or something. But right. it's nice enough to be able to like turn on the lights when I'm looking through my camera, and it's really really nicely done. Uh, really good way to watch them on your Apple TV. Very cool. Well, my next big adventure with HomeKit is making a non-HomeKit ceiling fan, a non-smart ceiling fan, into a HomeKit compatible ceiling fan. Ooh. So I'm I'm still working through that. What uh, way are you going? And, There's a few different options you've got there. Well, you you need to give me some advice about what my options are because what I've done so far is I've put in a Bluetooth controller into the ceiling fan and uh, have been trying to use Homebridge for that. 
Yeah, so I mean, you can use the Bluetooth controller for that straight through Homebridge, I believe. You could use um, an off-the-shelf um, remote kit. A lot of them sell those. And then use a make a HomeKit IR blaster with Homebridge. And then there's going to be a couple different companies out there, like iDevices, I think, has one launching this year that is an actual just wall switch replacement. So you swap out your wall yeah, and switch I've... and do that. Right, and that's where I'm really going eventually. But but the Bluetooth one was a Bluetooth remote kit that was an off-the-shelf kit. Mm-hmm. And the, I, the it worked with the Bluetooth app, and getting Homebridge to control it worked somewhat. It was uh, there, It's a little hit or miss on in terms of its signaling, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it worked fine. And um, my real issue is with Homebridge instability. Yeah, well, I guess there's not much you can do, do with that in the, the short term, but... Maybe no. we'll see some remotes that are capable of controlling those in the future. Um, again, yeah, who knows? Well, I'm looking forward to the uh, the iDevices product. I have asked them where that is, and I have not gotten a word back from their PR rep. Uh, yeah, I can't get a firm answer either, other than I, th- I think they're still aiming for this year. But they've definitely missed targets in the past. I remember my excitement for their their button. It was going to be a wall sticking, but it was going to be the first like HomeKit button that was out there. They would just stick on your wall. Of course, now we've got ones from Elgato Eve. We've got the Logitech Pop. We've got the Hue buttons that work, the tap and the dimmer switch. We've got the one from Fibaro. Got lots of different options out there at this point. But that was going to be one of the first ones. And then when it launched, they stripped out the HomeKit functionality. And it would only control the iDevices products. And it's like, okay, all the other ones support HomeKit. And then you have this one switch that won't work with any other HomeKit devices. So that was a bit of a bummer. Absolutely. Well, I want to go ahead and bring this show to a close. We're going to wrap things up here. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? They can always find me on appleinsider.com and they can reach out to me on Twitter at Andrew underscore OSU. And people should totally email us with listener questions. I I had a question earlier this week from someone on Twitter asking me about what to do with a 17-inch MacBook Pro that seems to have a broken GPU in it. And... You know, there, there are all kinds of listener questions we are ready to try and help answer and bring up on the show. For that person, the answer was to wrap the MacBook Pro in a blanket to see if they can get the screen to come on and then install uh, GFX, which is a, a graphics selector tool, and then force it to use the integrated Intel chip, which isn't burnt up, and then turn that laptop into a server. So there are all kinds of neat things we can discuss. Go ahead and let us know how we're doing. Please go ahead and email us. Please go ahead and leave reviews on iTunes. We like hearing from you, and we will be back next week. Andrew, I'll see you then. Talk to you later, Victor.